Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Mike, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Amateur Altours. You can follow us at Twitter, at AltoursPod, or send us an email at theamateuraltourspodcast at gmail.com. So this week, I am joined by good friend and fellow podcaster Dana Buckler from The Dana Buckler Show. Listeners may remember Dana when he came back on the show back in June of 2018, where we had a great conversation about his roots in podcasting, as well as all things movie. So Dana, welcome back to the show. It's so great to have you back on, and I appreciate you coming on in such short notice. Absolutely, Mike. Uh, I, I, I just want the listeners to know that I, um, I really enjoyed when you were on my show to do the in-depth Star Wars retrospective, and as, as far as I'm, as, as, the way I've got it written down here, you're actually due for one more episode we still have to talk about solo, but uh, when you reached out to me for this particular topic, I said absolutely, I'm in. I certainly have a lot to talk about when it comes to this particular film. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me back. And for any of the listeners that may not be aware, what is the Dana Buckler Show? And because your show has been going through quite the evolution and rebranding since the last time we spoke. Right. So the last time that we spoke, I was doing a podcast called How Is This Movie? Now, How Is This Movie? Uh, just just to read the title, you would think that it was just classic film review, when in fact, it was more of a film history podcast and film analysis podcast, really shied away from doing film review. Uh I always felt a little bit constrained by the title of the podcast. I, I always felt like I had to do exactly what I just did right now, and that is explain why the podcast is called How Is This Movie and when we don't actually really do film review. So that being said, I've always had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to rebrand the show. And so in late November, I recorded the fifth anniversary episode, which, by the way, thank you for being a small part of that. Uh, I recorded the fifth anniversary episode and decided that that would be the last ever episode of How Is This Movie and rebranded the show simply The Dana Buckler Show. Now, the plan was to keep it status quo, just to keep the name, just to change the name and you know, keep everything the same. But, you know, I've always got the wheels turning and I'm always thinking about different things. And I thought, you know, as you know, it is incredibly challenging to do podcasts by yourself. To do a solo podcast is a, is a, a monumental endeavor at times. And couple that in with the amount of research that I would have to do with each particular movie that I was talking about. I thought to maybe, I don't want to use the term lighten the workload, but maybe give myself a little bit of a break and not go crazy um, and maybe to lighten the, the workload just a little bit for me. And I thought about bringing a couple people on to discuss films a little differently than how I had been doing that. Instead of just doing just the basic history, I thought, why not do a little bit of the history and then bring people on that I thought would bring value to the conversation. And that's what exactly, and that's exactly what happened when I, I put a call out and uh, got, a few hundred people respond, and I, I settled on two people. One is um, Ashley Schlafly, and the other is Mike Scott. And I consider myself the luckiest podcaster out there to have found these two because they're both absolutely terrific. And so you mentioned sort of how the show has evolved. Ashley and I tend to still focus on, you know, a particular film, look at the history, and then really do an analysis of the film. And Mike is my co-host for a series called The 20th Century Movie Club. Now, the idea behind the 20th Century Movie Club was it is 2019, I'm 40 years old, and there are so many movies from the 70s, 80s, and 90s that I absolutely take for granted. They're just classic films to me. But I realized that there was a whole generation that 
maybe hasn't even heard a lot of a lot of the movies that we talk about. So I thought, why not come up with a concept where we recommend these movies? There's their second nature for us to talk about them. And we just recorded our fourth episode and the feedback on the 20th Century Movie Club has been it's been phenomenal. I mean, a lot of people seem to really be enjoying the picks that we've been doing. Some people don't like them, and that's okay. You know, these are a lot of these movies are movies that we personally like. I I have personally recommended, I think, three or four movies that have very low Rotten Tomato scores, but the movies mean a lot to me. So that's kind of where the show's at right now. Uh, I still intend on doing the standalone solo film history episodes. I've got one coming up soon on the movie Speed, and there's a couple other ones that I'm kicking around, but... I'm really happy with how the show has sort of evolved into this. And it's like I always tell anyone that's starting a podcast. Your show will be very different down the road from how you initially envisioned it. Envisioned it. Yeah, and that's definitely true. I, speaking for myself, yeah. I feel like my show has definitely changed drastically. It's more focused. And, and, I, and I can say that I think listening to you has helped me streamline my content and become a better podcaster. And before we begin the film this specific film conversation, I want to say that it's been an absolute pleasure watching your show grow through the evolution it's been been experiencing. I know we were talking about it a little bit before we started recording, but the conversations that you have in the show are great. Your new co-host, Mike and Ashley, adds so much depth to the conversations, whether it be Mike's seemingly endless uh, knowledge about all of these films and genres, or Ashley's intellectual approach to these films which blows me away it makes me really think about these like showgirls for example i thought that was just this kind of i don't even know really what i thought of it because i i have this new appreciation because of your show and the discussion with ashley so all in all just keep up the great work they're listening you guys are awesome and it's been awesome watching and listening and experiencing it in real time well i really appreciate you saying that and i have to tell you it has really reinvigorated my passion for the show not that that ever dwindled by any stretch of the imagination but any podcaster will tell you you go through highs and lows as far as you know keeping the momentum going and having Mike and Ashley on the show has really you know got me back to where it's like all right I can't wait to record let's get this done and and it's been it's been great so I really appreciate you you mentioning that you've you've enjoyed the evolution thank you Oh, you're welcome. And so all of that brings us to this episode this week that I asked you to come on. So today we're going to be discussing Bohemian Rhapsody, the new Queen biopic, biopic. And this film has intrigued and fascinated me on so many different levels, from the troubled past of the screenplay to the production nightmare that was the film to the astronomically different receptions from the critics and fans. Now, this film has made a ton of money, taking in over $800 million worldwide, and at the time of this recording, is still being played on regular schedules in movie theaters around my area, which was totally mind-blowing. I was not expecting this film to be still playing. But before we begin discussing the film itself, I think we should delve into our own personal histories with the band Queen and the man who was Freddie Mercury. Because I think ultimately how one views Queen's uh, Queen's work will definitely impact how they receive and perceive this film. Which is a point that we will definitely will hit on later on in this discussion. So Dana, to get things going, I have three questions for you. One, what does Queen mean to you? What were your initial impressions when you heard that this film was being made? And just for fun, what is your favorite Queen song? Well, that third one is going to be almost impossible for me to answer, but I will try my best. So 
I was born in 1978, and by the time I was born, Queen was already kicking ass in England and Europe and, and beginning to make a name for itself in the United States and other parts of the world. My very first introduction to Queen would have happened in very late 1986, and that was when my dad rented a movie called The Highlander, which, again, I think at the time I was eight years old. And I was so struck by the opening song that played Princes of the Universe. And I remember telling my dad as an eight-year-old, rewind that, rewind that. I want to hear that song again. It was so great. And that's when he just kind of said, well, wait a second. Hold on a second. And then he started going, he started telling me about, you know, go look through my record collection. And he had all these Queen vinyls. And I just realized that he was a big, big Queen fan. And and that's kind of how I got the introduction to Queen. And for Christmas that year, he bought me uh, A Kind of Magic, which is the unofficial soundtrack to The Highlander, because uh, as most people know, The Highlander doesn't have an official soundtrack, but Queen did the majority of the music on that particular film. And, I, you know, say what you will about The Highlander. I think it's a decent movie. I don't think it's anything great, but the soundtrack is phenomenal. So, uh, so for Christmas, my dad got me uh, A Kind of Magic, which I mentioned is the unofficial soundtrack to The Highlander. Um, so I spent the rest of the eighties just consuming as much of the queen music as I could. And I really, I mean, talk about, and we're going to get into this, but they're one of the most diverse musical bands in history. I mean, they're, I don't even want to say that they, they adapt with the times. They set the style in many cases. Uh, I remember watching, um, and queen had a second resurgency when the film Wayne's world came out and they had the, the great scene with uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, so I remember Queen became extremely popular again after that film came out. By that point, though, I was I was all in. I knew the band inside out, devastated when Freddie Mercury passed away, got to stay home. And my dad was able to arrange for us to watch the tribute concert that they did. So when when news broke, I what is it? It had been like 10 years ago. When, when news broke that they were going to do a biopic on this film, I'll be honest with you, and this is just being completely honest, I'm, I don't jump at the opportunity to see, a, to see a lot of biopics unless it's something I really like am absolutely crazy about. I didn't really pay much attention to it until it was announced that Sasha Baron Cohen was attached to possibly play Freddie Mercury, and that's when my ears just completely perked up because he is an absolute genius in anything he does. And just the thought of him even possibly playing Freddie Mercury, who was one of the great artists of all time, I mean, I got excited. I got really, really excited. Um, and then I would say when I found out he was no longer attached, I was I was kind of, eh, whatever. And then Remy Malek came on board and I, I, I wasn't really familiar with him. I had watched a couple episodes of Mr. Robot, but I wasn't, he wasn't like super on my radar. So, you know, I could say I was, I was following the development, but I wasn't doing it on a daily basis. If I caught a blurb, a headline, maybe I would read the article, but I wasn't super, super crazy about it. Like, um, and then to answer the third question, what is my favorite queen song? I mean, that is, that is, it depends on my mood, Mike, it really, it depends on my mood. So I love, I want it all. That's, I just think that's one of the most kick-ass songs. It's very inspirational, gets you motivated. Uh, Who Wants to Live Forever, I think, is just a heartbreaking song. Um, uh, 
Days of Our Lives has a really special meaning to me because that was released shortly before Freddie Mercury passed away. And it was one of those songs when my family moved from Canada to the United States and I didn't have any of my friends around me anymore. It was one of those songs that I would sort of just wallow in self-pity listening to. Um, I, I like I like the big ones, you know, We Will Rock You, We Are the Champion. Those are great songs. But I, I would probably say I Want It All or Hammer to Fall are my two favorite Queen songs. Yeah, and, and it's one of those... That's a. I feel like that's a pretty like bogus question because it's like which one? There's so many different types of songs that, and like you said, they're such an eclectic band that have so many different styles. You know, they have their roots in, you know, classic rock or just in rock, and then they just kind of evolve into something completely different uh, depending on their album. So, Queen to me is most certainly one of those influential bands for me at such a young age. When I look back at this time in my life. There are those three bands, or there are three bands that I consider formative in regards to music, and they are the Beatles, Green Day, and Queen. I was first introduced to Queen probably when I was 12 or 13 years old, and I've been slowly exploring the, their works ever since. In middle school and high school was the time where I mostly listened to their traditional work, so pretty much the Queen's greatest hits, volumes one, two, three, however many there are, there's like a thousand of them now. But then in college, I that's when I really began exploring the more underrated works. So things like their live performance albums and Freddie Mercury's solo career. I think, touching on that, I think Barcelona is one of the greatest songs ever had, especially with the mix-up, or the mashup with Freddie Mercury and an opera singer. It's just it's just a, such a beautiful song. And But my favorite song by Queen would definitely be a tie between... Uh, Lazing on a Sunday Afternoon and Good Old Fashioned Lover Boy. Now, I don't think these songs are necessarily mainstream queen, maybe Good Old Fashioned Lover Boy, but if you listen to them, they are very similar in style. And I think that these, I like these the most because of the personality that Mercury brings to these songs, or these specific songs. To me, they are very cheeky and fun, and I always feel that Mercury is singing to his audience and being fun with us during these songs. So I feel like that they are the essence of Mercury and his personality. So as for the film, my second question, I don't remember specifically when. It definitely wasn't 10 years ago, because I'm 23 now, so I was 12, 13, around the time of getting into Queen. So I wouldn't know anything about Sasha Baron Cohen. Didn't see Borat. Like, I was way too young to be seeing any of really any of his work or even understand like Ali G and any of that. So I didn't under, I didn't really know about that before this was released or announced, but whenever they released the press images of Rami Malek as Freddie Mercury in his attire and live aid, that's when I first heard about the the film. And then shortly after footage from live aid was leaked. And that was, I think that was the first thing they shot was Live Aid. And Dana, I got to tell you, I was absolutely hooked at that moment. I was hyped before the hype train even began. I thought Malik looked amazing as Mercury. And Mr. Robot is one of my favorite shows. And it beats pretty much anything. I think it's perfect. It's like cinematic television. I think it's better than Breaking Bad, which is my second favorite show. And it's just absolutely amazing. But... I'll do Mr. Robot later on as an episode, maybe. But all in all, I was extremely excited to see this film. So now I need to ask you, when did you see this film? I saw this on a preview night. So, And I actually released a uh, an initial impression or first impression of the film. And I'll mention that again later on. But I had such a great time with that viewing. I had a great 
uh, crowd of Queen fans, and I actually sat next to a woman who attended many Queen concerts, including the Madison Square Gardens depicted in the film. So we had a lovely conversation following the movie. My girlfriend was with me, and she was... I hate talking to people in public. And she was like, wow, I've never seen you like that before. So I need to... So Dana, when you eventually did see the film, what were your initial thoughts? Like right out the gate, right out of the movie theater. So, all right. So that's an interest. That's a very interesting question because I have to tell you, when the first trailers debuted for this film, I was impressed with how Remy Malek looked. And I thought, well, his manner mannerisms are just, just spot on. He's it's, it's it's a brilliant one-to-one casting of Freddie Mercury, but I didn't want to see the movie. Oh, wow. And I know that sounds crazy because I just, I really, really liked the band and I was really worried that this was not going to be a movie that I wanted to see. I know that sounds crazy. I'm, I consider myself a diehard Queen fan and I didn't want to see it in the theater and I didn't see it in the theater. I only saw it two weeks ago for the very first time when it came out on video on demand. And I don't know if that answers your question as far as what was my first impressions of the movie, but my first impressions of the movie is that I didn't want to see it because I was a little bit concerned about how they were going to present the band. And I wanted to, I think I wanted to wait and hear the feedback. Like, yep, this is, this is an accurate portrayal of what it was like to be a member of that band. And I had a coworker and Rebecca, I think you're probably listening she saw the damn movie four times in the theater. Like she was obsessed, obsessed with it. And she saw, and she kept telling me, have you seen it yet? Have you seen it yet? And this is somebody who, when we were at work before the movie came out, we would be talking about queen and I would be pulling up YouTube videos of, of, of you know, watch this, that watch this live aid. Here's live at Wembley 86, the entire thing. So like we would, we would constantly talk about the band and how great they were. And it, it puzzled her to death as far as, well, why haven't you seen this damn movie yet? And I just kept saying, I don't know why. I'm very trepidatious about seeing this movie. Well, I eventually did see it, and I think this is where we get into, you know, our thoughts on the film. Yeah, and I think going into... I can understand why people didn't want to see it, because for me, I thought this film was going to be R, and it was PG-13. That was ringer number one, that there were some troubled waters uh, ahead, because... Someone like Freddie Mercury, who renowned for his his private life of both very quiet but also uh, flamboyant, throwing these ragers of a party. I think I was reading an article that he would have it. It it, it reminded me of Wolf of Wall Street, except in his yeah. mansion. Just you know, like um, like little people running around. It, it, they even have like a kind of a throwaway line in the movie, like invite giants and and midgets and. And just invite everyone you can. We'll shake the tree and just see what falls out. And his parties were just wild. And I think that's what Sasha Baron Cohen wanted to explore more. Which, you know, we'll, I, I don't know. I'll say it right now, and we'll probably get into it later on. I, I think Sasha Baron Cohen's version would have been more focused. But I don't necessarily think it would have been a better movie. I don't know if that's a controversial claim. We don't ever know because the movie was never made, and we and I don't know what the screenplay entailed. All I know is what he said on a uh, talk shows, just ba- uh, bashing Queen or the the surviving members of Queen. But I can understand not wanting to see the movie for many different reasons. Also, you don't want to be disappointed. It's it's one of your favorite your favorite bands. It's so 
it's so formative for you. Like you don't want to be disappointed by something like this. But for me, I was like I said, I was extremely hyped when I left the movie. Uh, as anyone who listened to that review could tell, I must say I think I was riding on a little bit of a high that makes me not want to listen to me talk again after after that because I think I was saying some things in the moment and not really thinking which isn't necessarily bad but I think essentially I was so excited because to me this was the closest thing to a queen performance with Freddie Mercury I will ever see in my entire life which now we can uh, start the discussion officially and I think we should start with the positives because I feel like we're going to have some some critiques that need to be addressed (laughs) as we go on. So for me, I thought, number one, the cast was spectacular. Obviously, Rami Malek as Freddie Mercury, he embodies Mercury in this role. So I guess we can start with Rami Malek. I think that's the one point, if anything, to take away from this movie is Rami Malek. Rami Malek, Rami Malek. I don't think there's anybody, even those that are detractors of the film, I don't think there's one person that says that he has given a bad performance. I think he is unbelievable in this role. And I say that as a compliment. I mean, and, and and listen, he's getting the accolades to back it up. He's won a Golden Globe. He's nominated for an Academy Award. And I saw Freddie Mercury on screen. And I, the best parts of him on screen were, you know, and we'll talk about the ending. We'll talk about the, the ending in a little bit. But to see him just in everyday life, I mean, to see him on stage, I've seen enough Freddie Mercury videos and, and DVDs and things like that, that I've, I've seen Freddie Mercury, the performer, but I want to see Freddie Mercury, the person outside of uh, the spotlight. And he, I thought, embodied Freddie Mercury. I thought he did a phenomenal job and I don't have a negative thing to say, uh, except I think Freddie Mercury was a little bit taller than him. And I think he looks a little bit short in this movie, but that's that is such a minor critique. Uh, I thought he nailed the role. So that that is absolute high marks for me. Yeah, and just the level of detail that Malik really wanted for this role. I mean, he had he had the, he's American, so he had to have the uh the British accent, which Americans can't really it's either hit or miss with an English accent and he, you know, gets gets it right, but he thought, you know, the the accent isn't enough. I have to be. I have to go 110% with this. So he got movement coaches. He got. Um, he had, he had a vocalist. Now it wasn't his voice, obviously, but which I guess I I, I want to ask you about that after this point. Uh, it wasn't. But he had. Um, I was watching. I have this film on Blu-ray. So I was watching the uh, the behind the scenes, and he had a vocal coach because they knew going in that they were obviously going to dub him, but they didn't want it to look like he was mimicking. So he was singing throughout the film so they got the just even the detail of the vocal cords moving so it didn't look like he was uh mimicking which i thought was utterly amazing that detail but i want to ask you now that it just come, came to my head because brian and i actually had a discussion about this on one of our previous episodes do you mind that he was dubbed dubbed over did it bother you did it take you out of the moment because i think in this day and age of hollywood Actors, it's this whole vanity thing that actors are going to sing and they're and they're just gonna go for it even if they can't sing, even if they're not tra- uh, classically trained. Well, that's 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 a a multi part answer. You ask me, you know, um, I'm reminded of a movie that came out in the 1980s called La Bamba, which starred Lou Diamond Phillips as Richie Valens, and 
I remember if you go back and watch that movie now, he's clearly lip syncing. In fact, the band Los Lobos actually filled in and did a lot of the vocals for Richie Valens because they didn't have decent audio recordings to, to dub over. Uh, but it's very clear that he is not the one singing. It's very clear that he's lip syncing. And that took me really out of it. Now, you fast forward to Bohemian Rhapsody. Well, Remy Malik, he, he, he just so embodied the, the persona of him and so, you know, his mannerisms, everything about him. Um, you kind of have to use Freddie Mercury's vocals on that one because nobody else sang like that man. Nobody had to pitch the range. Everything that that man did, he, he was so one of a kind that I think it would have been an insult to Freddie Mercury to not use his vocals. So that's my personal preference on that. And I didn't realize what you, you know, what you just told me about the, uh, the vocal coach and, and the fact that he actually sang just so they could mimic everything. So epic. like, I, I applaud that. I, I applaud that. And it, it, it's flawless. I mean, it's one-to-one flawless. If, if you would have told me, Hey, that was actually Remy Malik singing. And I've been like, wow, he does a great Freddie Mercury because he just, it, Nothing about it seemed to me that it was lip syncing, except the fact that, you know, no one can duplicate Freddie Mercury's vocals. Yeah. And because one of these things we talked about, and I think it just it just goes into the 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 actor. This is all about the performance. It's not about him. I always took the I, I took the performance as this is a tribute to Freddie Mercury. This isn't Rami Malek saying I won an Oscar. This is about a man that has impacted billions of people with music and 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 brian and i talked about this on our episode of the young girls of rochefort the french uh new wave musical excellent film highly recommend it but half of the actors even gene Gene kelly's in the film and he's dubbed over i mean it's obviously in french but he can speak and sing in french but it kind of the point is is that it's not about the actor it's about the overall product of the film and i think that didn't bother me going in. I, I, I knew as, as long as Remy Malik performed, it wasn't going to bother me. So it didn't bother me. So that kind of concludes my whole take on, on Remy Malik as Freddie Mercury. Absolutely amazing. I think he deserves the Oscar. And any more th- uh, closing thoughts on uh, Malik as Mercury? Uh, no, I, I, but I do have a one follow-up question to something you just said there. So uh, no, 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 no more thoughts on Remy Malik. He was excellent. Um, I have to ask you though, did you see Vice? I the did Christian not. The Christian Bale, Dick Cheney movie. Okay. I, I saw a lot of behind the scenes and I saw sure. a lot of uh, interviews for it, but I did not get around seeing it. So I did see that movie. Ironically, I saw it in the theater and I actually have a movie theater rant episode planned to come out. Time, <laughs> oh, Dana, time. You, you and your movie theater experiences. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But this, this is, this is going to be a different theater rant story than anything you've heard before. But that being said, <laughs> uh, and this is not a discussion about the movie Vice. I'll save my thoughts for that episode. But I would be surprised if Christian Bale didn't win the Academy Award. Having seen both performances, that's how much he nailed wow. the Dick Cheney, Dick, Dick, the Dick Cheney performance. However, that being said, I w- I suspect that Remy Malik will win because nobody really likes Dick Cheney, and I'm not trying to get super political, but I think I think a lot of the Academy of voters are not going to be a big fan, are not fans of Dick Cheney. So for that reason alone. <laughs> I think Remy Malik will win it. I'm not necessarily saying I think he deserves to win it because I thought uh, Bale was phenomenal in Vice. 
and maybe we'll see. Upsets happen all the time at yeah. the Oscars, so we'll see. So my next point is um, about the cinematography, and I know that this has been splitting many people, but to me, I really enjoyed it. Like I said, I bought this film on Blu-ray, and it looks absolutely incredible. I don't really know why, but I just can't look away from the film. And I I like the style of... And, and this is... We can get into this as well. I definitely think that there's two different directors making this film. Because there were two different directors. We had Brian Singer sign on, and then he was fired shortly after. And then Dexter Fletcher came back, uh, was assigned from Fox to finish the film uh, in filming, but also in the... Uh, post-production in the editing so there's it kind of feels like solo and that there's two and we'll when we get eventually get there we'll get there but it kind of feels like there's so many different fingerprints on this film and i can't really determine who's who because live aid feels completely different than the rest of the film but other than that i really enjoyed the cinematography i really enjoyed just the feel of the film so that's kind of that's kind of with me. The, the my two biggest points are Malik and the cinematography. What about you? Did you have any thoughts on the style of this film? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna second something you said about the live a performance, and I I think I think it's safe to say that we're we're going we're into spoilers in this discussion. So we're we're working on the assumption that most people that have listened that are listening to this have have seen Bohemian Rhapsody. You know, if not, I'm going to talk a little bit about the the climactic finale of the film. So skip ahead a few minutes if you don't want to hear this. You mentioned the Live Aid performance. That was absolutely breathtaking to watch. Oh, and yeah, that, that was that. Yeah, Live Aid was my next point uh, to discuss with you. But yeah, let's. But but I want to say like that felt and looked so authentic and so I believe if you would have told me that they filled Wembley Stadium up with 10 or 20,000 extras and went out and did that. Maybe they did. I don't know. I'm assuming most of it's CG. I know, I'm, I'm, and, I'll, yeah. and I'll tell you when you're okay. done. Okay, <laughs> but if you would have told me that they would have had a, you know at least a few thousand extras in there just to film it, um, I know they would have had to have CG. The Wembley's too big to fit that many extras in there, but that was exhilarating to watch that performance. And I had seen it. I've, I had watched it on YouTube on my TV a hundred times. So, and, and the fact that they did the entire concert, that the entire 20 minute performance was fantastic, but you're talking about specifically the sp- cinematography that looked fantastic. Almost every other performance that queen gives in that movie looked cheap and green screen to me. And I'm wondering if it's something that, you know, I wonder is this Brian Singer? Because I know they did Live A was the first things they shot. Was was that Singer? Did he have that? Did he have a part in that? And was that Dexter on the on the other end? Because I was not impressed at all with any of the other like when they were in big performances like at Madison Square Garden and a different. I thought it looked very very cheap, and so I I I I'm very mixed feelings about the cinematography and the and the layout of just specifically talking about every time the band was performing. Yeah, and specifically so I'll I'll talk about the the rest of the the performances. I felt I think cheap is <laughs> is a good uh it's a good way to describe it. I felt like they weren't explored enough. Like there's the there's the whole mon it's all in montage, which yeah, yeah. they perf- they toured a lot. They went to a lot of different places. But you know, these big shows like in in Rio and Madison Square Gardens where they are 
points and, and points of focus on the film. They they kind of feel rushed along and just kind of swept under. I understand the montage that's needed when they go across like the Midwest and and all these different places to uh uh to all the different songs. I I did I mean I like that, but I, it definitely did feel very rushed and 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 that's kind of my my we can get that starts uh, teasing the the critiques of the film. But specifically with Live Aid, I've seen Live Aid or Queen's performance of Live Aid many many times. My favorite moment of um of pretty much any live concert is the note heard around the world. His his AO. I absolutely love it. It's in the trailer and they know that I love it cuz they that's like heavily <laughs> everywhere and it's throughout the entire film, which is odd to me because he they tease it at um it's one of the places they were at. I forget it which montage but they they did the beginning of AO and I was like well that's kind of weird I feel like that should happen at the end but I the level of detail for Live Aid so okay so I'll tell you how they did film Live Aid so because it looks absolutely incredible my actually I was watching this with my mom the other on uh, Friday night and she said wow did they actually fill Wembley up I'm like no and I, the only reason I know it's because I watched how they did it the on the behind the scenes so they went into the middle of a field, and they built the stage, the sound stage, and they filmed those angles on stage, and then they had, you know, green screen things around, and they only had around 300 extras that were, that they would position randomly. So they, so that was like the crowd in front of the stage. But then for those sweeping shots, they rotoscoped the rest, and they would, you know, take that crowd and move them, but then they would this was mind-blowing. Then they would take, um, they got on a green screen and they filmed individual people doing, because uh, with uh, the clapping throughout the entire thing, it's different beats, so they can't just like throw random people. So they individually filmed people to the different songs and what they would be doing, and then they individually scattered them with some computer software. That's incredible. And then, and then they rendered the whole thing, and, and then we got the, f- the final product. And that, to me, just blew my mind watching this. But with Live Aid, this scene alone... It's this scene that's why this film, I think, should be seen in theaters. It was breathtaking. Like you said, breathtaking. And just, I was on the edge of my seat. The woman next to me was, like, getting into it. She She's like, oh, like, afterwards, she was saying, oh, I wanted to get up and start dancing, but I was afraid that this audience wasn't that... And I said, fuck it. Freddie Mercury would have wanted you to do that. Be the queen. And, um... But it was utterly amazing and even the the level of detail again detail 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 i'm a man of details the live aid wembley when they were computer generating it they had to get original blueprints because they couldn't i guess they demolished it and rebuilt wembley and then they could only find the blueprints from like the 1940s or something but they couldn't find what it was in the 70s so they had to go solely from videos and photography and then they had to, you know, do all the extras and whatever. But then even so much as in the stage, the lighting, they said that the lighting wasn't spectacular since it was a charity concert. They didn't want to go the, they didn't want to really go all out with this expensive lighting. So they was just bare minimum stage and daylight. So they had all the whiteness. They had people on the scaffolding just randomly. Like people, when they watch the film, they might think like, oh, that's just kind of, people that were there no you can see it in the background of live aid of just these dudes in short uh in jean shorts and boots hanging out uh the the beer and the pepsi uh 
uh, cups on the piano, even as much as like when they go in and uh, he warms up and with the with the piano and he's tuning the piano, it's just utterly amazing. And then you get into the movements of Freddie Mercury, just how he's moving with he's when he's flirting with the camera. Um, the attire of the whole band. They said that they they had to go to America to get the pants and the boxing shoes. They got the original shirt that Brian May was wearing. It was it was incredible, utterly amazing. Uh, the one I I actually highly suggest watching Live Aid side by side. Uh, it's on YouTube, and they did cut out crazy little thing called Love in the beginning of We Will Rock You, which they did film. And I understand why they cut it because it kind of because the whole time Live Aid is at in a is at a twelve out of ten, and for some reason Crazy Little Thing Called Love in the beginning of We Will Rock you kind of dips it to like a nine. Uh, it's still incredible, but it goes on a little too long, so I understand that because they gotta they go out on the highest of highs. So Live Aid was utterly amazing, and then we and then the credits roll and we have Don't Stop Me Now and and uh, man, I was just going with it for the whole time, and and that's I think why I was on that high leaving the film. Well, see, I agree with you. I agree with everything you said about the last 20 minutes of the movie. In, in that it was, I mean, that's that's the way you end a movie, especially if you're in, in, in for, for the millions and millions of, of, of Queen fans out there. That is, I mean, that is a crescendo to end all crescendos. But there's still another hour and 40 minutes of that movie that we have to talk that we have to talk about. You know, I, I absolutely love the final 20 minutes of it where I start to really get it. I'm sure we're going to get into where I start to get into my issues is with the rest of the movie. And, and that's the and problem. And that's my next point. We yeah. we'll get right into our critiques. But before we move into the critiques, I wanna I wanna ask you, Dana. We mm-hmm. mentioned earlier that the reception to this film is critics don't like it and fans love it. And I wanna ask you, is the hatred for this film warranted? Because this is a this is a question that I cannot get an answer from anyone that I ask. So currently just kind of the basic stuff, like a quick Google search. This film sits with a 1 out of 4 stars from RogerEbert.com, 61 on Rotten Tomatoes, a 49 on Metacritic, but the fans on IMDb have it an 8.2 and an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. So let me ask you real quick, do you think that, who? I don't want to say who's right, because I don't think anyone's really right. Who? Where would you more inclined to agree with, I guess is the better way to, to answer that? Or to ask I, I, that. I, I would be right smack in the middle. As I see a lot of merit in this movie, and I think it's a movie that I, if you're a fan of Queen, I think you should watch it. But I also think you should be prepared to, I think, I, I can't really use the word underwhelmed because the ending is so fantastic. But I think if you are a Queen fan and you are wanting to really learn a lot about the band, I think you're going to walk away a little bit disappointed. But I don't think that it deserves the hate the you know the, the the one out of four stars, but I mean, listen, uh, movies are art, art is subjective, and we all have our own opinions. Uh, but that being said, I think I would fall squarely in the middle, right, right down the center, because I think there's great in this movie, and I think there's a lot of head scratching in this movie at the same time. Yeah, and I think I, I think I would also lead in the or land in like the moderate zone, but probably going more towards the fans' agreement. But for me, why this the hatred from the critics really intrigues me is because I feel like it extends far beyond just dumping on the movie. I have actually stopped following specific critics on Twitter and social media because 
they were attacking people that really did enjoy the film, which is weird because they're attacking their own audience. Now, <laughs> if there is a pet peeve of mine, it's when people attack me personally and as a movie buff for my taste in films. I don't understand this logic of politicizing movies between critics and that if you like or dislike the movie, then there must be something wrong with you. And we talked about this in like in June, too. This, this point came up. But I hated it when my dad did it following his disdain for La La Land, and I fucking hate it right now. So I, I really don't... I, why do you think these critics are so harsh on this film? Well, that's a... You know, here's the thing. I can tell you, I, I have an... I have a, an idea, but, you know, we live in an age where there's so much out there. There's so many critics out there. You have to stand out. You have to, you have to make a name for yourself. And there's no better way to make a name for yourself than to create controversy. You know, and, and, and you look at some film critics out there, they've made a, a career out of being negative when everybody else really likes something. So, I mean, that's one theory. You know, I, 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 maybe it's me because I, and I hate to say this, this is going to sound so crazy, but maybe as I'm getting in my old age, as, as I'm, as I'm, uh, you know, almost 41 years old, you know, I, I, I does, I don't even know now why people, Mike, I'm going in a few different directions here because I'm just really starting to overanalyze the question. And the thing is this. <laughs> It doesn't bother me if people if people don't like the movies I do, I love I like it doesn't bother anymore. It, I used it used to it used to bother me a lot. I used to defend movies to the to the you know tooth and nail to the end, but now I don't doesn't even bother me anymore. But that being said, why do you, the question you specifically asked me is why do people why do I think why do I think these guys hate this movie so much? Is that essentially the question? Yeah, you pretty asked? much. Man. I don't know because I can think of ten movies that came out this year that I thought were far worse that I think critics were far more generous to. Mm-hmm. So I think that's it's it's kind of an enigma. I really don't have a definitive answer for you except to let to say to you and to anyone listening, it's okay to love something that people hate and it's okay to to not like something that people love. I mean that's just that's just the world we live in now, and you're gonna get attacked for your beliefs no matter what they are when it comes to movies because some people are going to love it some people are going to hate it it's how you choose to to handle it i think is the only way to move forward yeah and i think a a big motto that i try and live by in life is don't be an asshole and yeah that's the key and i think just a lot of these people are just they love being assholes and, and 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 i definitely was like when people when these critics make these claims like how could anyone like these movies and I was like, but you have to, you have to, as a critic, you should understand, like, art's subjective. I mean, you don't have to like something, but don't attack me, because it, it's when it becomes personal is when I get offended. I don't give a, I don't care if people like a movie that, um, that I like, or they like a movie that I dislike. I don't, I don't think anything's wrong with them. I'll try and understand it more, but again, it goes back to that life motto, don't be an asshole. So, that's, that, that's kind of a big reason why I was so intrigued by this film because I started getting attacked because I liked this movie. What do you mean by you were getting attacked? Give, well, me, so, give me an example because I'm maybe, curious now. I mean, maybe not me particular, but I, okay, so I was, uh, when this film came out, I was on, uh, I was just browsing through Twitter and this guy that I actually kept following, he said, this is my reaction when I'd seen Bohemian Rhapsody and it was like some Andy Samberg 
like with the face distortion thing. And then I and then there was like all these comments uh, of just the the comment thread, and I was reading them. And people kept saying, like, yeah, anyone that likes this movie, this they're just part of the dumb masses. This is what the critics said. And I was like, dumb masses? <laughs> and then even people were saying, like, what do you mean, the dumb masses? It's just, it's it's a it's a, it's a populist film. And he said, well, people just, it's kind of like what my dad said when I said La La Land was okay. Or I kind of like, kind of liked it. He's like, oh, it's a, it's very condescending. I'm like, it's okay. You just don't know movies. And that's why I'm here, is to bestow knowledge and enlightenment upon you. And it was just very pompous, and I was like, D- "Dude, you just you you write about you write a piece about a movie on Twitter, and it might get twenty likes. Like, I don't know what to tell you. You're not you're not Roger Ebert, and even if you were, I I don't know. I it just it makes my blood boil when when people think I'm dumb for liking a movie, and I have and I have reasons why I like the movie, and and so, and if and if it goes into is I like Queen." And it's a guilty pleasure movie. Like it does exact. It's formulaic, and it does exactly what I want. So so be it. I I am a, the biggest fan of the Force Awakens, and it is not cool to like that movie anymore. Really? And I think it's I, I think it's you know people are, you know because it, it, these these Twitter social media trends that's become a populist film now. So is just like Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> I want to tell you with the with the coworker. You know, eventually I, I saw the movie. She was asking me all the time, well, did you see it? And I finally walked into work one day. I'm like, just casually taking a sip from my coffee. I'm like, so I, uh, I watched Bohemian Rhapsody last night. And she's like, what? You know, why didn't you call me? Why didn't you text me? And she said, well, what do you think? And I said, well, I got to tell you, there was a lot of good in that movie. But I have to tell you, as, a, as somebody who wanted to learn more about the band, I was disappointed. And we're still friends. You know, we're, we're still friends. We're still, we're, it's, it's completely okay. Like we're, you know, she knows that I thought the movie was extremely watchable and enjoyable. And I thought for having, it was almost a two hour and 20 minute runtime. I thought the movie flew by and I was genuinely interested in what I was seeing on screen. I just wasn't fulfilled in the sense that there was a lot of key things that were omitted from the movie that I would have liked to have seen explored a little bit more, particularly, and I don't, I'm not sure, I don't want to over overreach as far as you know how you have this this episode outlined, but particularly the the film ends live eight eighty five. There's there's another five six years that I would have liked to have seen explored a little bit more, and who knows, maybe they will. Maybe the popularity of this film. Well, because there, there's still a lot of story left to be told, in my opinion. Oh, but that course. being said, you know, it's not a bad movie. And, and it's okay to not, it's okay to like this movie. It's okay to like any movie. It's, it's such a, you know, Mike, it's such a strange world we live in now where you get attacked for just the littlest things. It's just, uh, I, I, and I say this as somebody who's very, very much on social media all the time, but tries to stay as positive as possible. I think the most controversial thing I've tweeted in the past year was that I will, instead of watching the Oscars this year, I'll watch a couple of the Oscar-nominated films that will be awarded during the commercial break, the, for the categories that will be awarded during the commercial break. But that's all for nothing now because the Academy is reverse course and they're going to show all the awards on air now anyway but i'm sorry we could have do a whole episode about no, yeah exactly social, and, me- social media and it's something so 
trivial. And that's like the last thing I'll like movies are great. Like obviously we've dedicated so much of our time towards movie, but in the end of the day, like a movie's just a movie. It's just it's just it's it's art that we enjoy. It's this is a hobby that we like. But you know, that's kinda that was a that's an awesome tangent that we just went on, but uh and it and it's related. But we can we can read we can uh, reel it back a little bit. We can uh going into our critiques of the film. So I think my big critique is that I think that this film is unfocused, and it's it's definitely flawed, but it's mostly unfocused, and that it doesn't know if it wants to be a Queen film, a Freddie Mercury film, so it goes straight in the middle, middle and it suffers because of it. So, exactly. So what? And then I guess another thing that I have is the timeline. Did this bother you that they were changing events around for big one that a lot of people are saying? or pointing out, is that Freddie Mercury wasn't diagnosed with AIDS until, I think it was like two years after Live Aid. To me, my opinion on the matter with biopics is that it doesn't matter to me. If I feel that if you really want to get an accurate depiction, go watch a documentary. I'm willing to give films creative liberties to, to a point, as long as they get the spirit correct. And I feel like in this case... I feel like the I feel like that spirit is mostly there. That's kind of my opinion because it didn't bother me. I'm going to slightly disagree with you on on the timeline thing. Um, particularly, you know, he was diagnosed. Uh, if 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 you're if we, I've re- read it correctly and if history is correct here, he was diagnosed in 1987 and didn't share the information that he was sick with his bandmates until uh, a month or two before he passed away. You, you know, the fact that they decided to have him announce to his band that he's got that he's HIV positive, uh, you know, while they're rehearsing for Live Aid, you know, that's done to really send the band off on this, you know, epic conclusion when in reality, I mean, they they did they did a, an amazing performance at Wembley Stadium a year later, Queen Live at Wembley. It's a two-hour long concert it's amazing to watch I, I was bothered by that in the sense that this just goes back to what i'm going to say like you left off six more years of this incredible band's journey of this incredible man's journey this incredible band's journey so i thought that was a little bit uh i i disagreed with that i thought i was a little bit i wish they would have continued to tell the story so i agree with i disagree with you slightly on that one i understand that yeah listen it's a movie you've got to take creative liberties you've got a band that released 15 16 17 albums amazing films tons of hit songs every member of the band had an incredible journey and you got two and a half hours to tell that story you've got to condense it i totally get that that's the one thing i think they would have you could have just put in a title card at the end you know you know, you, there there could have been a different way to handle that. I think, I, I think it. I don't know if it lessens the the impact of the final performance for me. I know it's supposed to really amp it up for everybody. Like this is them going out on top. It's the if if you don't know Queen, if you don't know the band, and you've seen this movie, you may be left with the impression that that was the last time they ever performed. Because he said, "I'm sick. This is yeah. it. You know, we've got to perform." And so that to me, I thought that was a little bit. I think they could have gone in a different direction with that one. That's my critique of it. Yeah, I think ultimately another reason why it doesn't bother me is because Queens, uh, well, I want to say the Survivor members because everyone except Freddie Mercury is still alive, but Brian May and Roger Taylor, they they were like 
fingerprints, or I don't know about fingerprints, but they were heavily involved in every aspect of this. That The reason the Sacha Baron Cohen project fell through was because they didn't agree how the portrayal of Freddie Mercury... Also, I think they wanted to be in the movie. They wanted to be more of a Queen film. I think a big point of contention was the original screenplay, they wanted Freddie Mercury to die at the end of the second act, and then the third act would be Queen rebounding from that. And Sacha Baron Cohen was like, no one gives a shit about you guys, and it won't make a fun movie. And then that's when they the project officially fell through. But... Well, that's an interesting thing, if I could just interrupt just for a second there, because my one other little point of contention I had about the film, it goes to directly to what you just said there, is I don't feel like I learned anything about the other members of the band. And, you know, if they if they made that decision to to scrap the idea of, of Mercury passing away two quarters into the film and then focus more on the band... I'm not sure they accomplished their goal in the sense of getting to know the band a little bit more because I did I didn't know anything about them and that's another thing. This was I go again. It goes and you you brilliantly assessed it when you said you don't know if this is a Queen a Queen movie or a Freddie Mercury movie and they just go right down the line and both both parts suffer. So you know that's a really good point you brought up there. But I didn't learn I learned fuck all about the band. It's it's just odd because I because. I you have to the band was so involved that they have to they have to sign off being like this was fine this was fine like that change is okay, uh, and going back to that that Live Aid <clears throat> being diagnosed with HIV, and then uh, since they're ending with Live Aid I feel like it's a lose lose because another question I have is about the depiction of his sexuality in this film, is that I feel like if they didn't even mention HIV outside of him you know <laughs> the dramatically coughing into a tissue and there's blood i think if they just left it at that just insinuating that he's sick i feel like people would be like this is disrespectful like this was something that ended his this was so big in his life so it's one of those things that i mean i can give it to the film but i can see i can concede why it would definitely be it can bother someone uh, and that can be a definitely a big nitpick so i guess that goes into what i just mentioned I want to ask you, do you think that this film is homophobic because a bit, another big con- point of contention among critics was that they were saying that the depiction of homosexuality and being diagnosed with HIV is a cautionary tale and that because obviously the whole relationship with Mary is true to form and it's I think it's pretty well represented but they a lot of these critics were saying when he's with Mary it's this uh ideal um this very great representation of his his life's going great, but then once he starts, you know, going down that path with with homosexuality, he starts abusing drugs. He starts he starts going out to these gay bars. He contracts HIV, and and then at the end of the movie, he he gets rid of Paul, and he kind of has his comeback. So, I have my opinions if the film's homophobic or not. What what about you, Dana? Well, this is a this is interesting territory to go into mm-hmm. as far as I um I I honestly didn't think about I I didn't watch the film as a cautionary tale about you know you know what it was like to be to be gay in the 1980s because that was a uh, first of all it's it wasn't as nearly as widely accepted as it is today and it was something that unfortunately had to be kept in the shadows uh and the AIDS crisis which I'm I'm old enough to remember you know back then that it was 
I mean, it was, it was terrible. It was, it was, it was, they didn't have any answers. I mean, it was a terrible, terrible experience. <clears throat> yeah. And, and going on that, my mom, actually, when we were watching this, the scene when he was being diagnosed uh, with the blood test, my mom was saying, she's been a nurse for 40 years. And she was saying, I remember this time she was in her early twenties when all these, uh, on the HIV AIDS patients were coming in and she's like, it was scary. Like we didn't know what was going on. We didn't know how it was transmitted. We just knew that it was drug users and homosexuals were coming in with HIV and we were scared. And I think, I, I don't, I don't think that this film was homophobic. When I was watching it, I, I didn't go into, I, I didn't go into the film with this idea. I know that people were kind of, they were saying a lot of things that the trailer didn't represent his sexuality, which I thought was a weird critique because it's a trailer. It's not the film. It's yeah. a it's it's a minute thirty, two minutes. It's just supposed to get you hooked, and so I didn't I didn't really start reading these critiques until after because I saw it preview night. So I started reading them as the film started being uh, widely released. For me, with Paul's character. And I, and I think that's another thing that they changed. They obviously needed a villain in this film. And I think he definitely was a bad influence, as Brian May quotes. But, I mean, I, he did... Because I think from what I understood, Mercury was... He was definitely withdrawn in his own private life when he wasn't throwing these parties. And Paul was definitely that bad influence. And he was... And they were sexually involved. And he was threatening to blackmail him with uh these exploits because especially yeah, like you mentioned homosexuality in this time was very in the shadows and and not very public and i've been in relationships with toxic people whether that's acquaintances friendships um like actual uh relationships and this depiction is how i just viewed between freddie and paul was was toxic and freddie was a lonely person i feel like that this film really got that message well enough in uh, that one of the big parties that he throws that we mentioned earlier, when he says they they say money can't buy happiness, but you can certainly give it away. I think that that's such a throwaway line, but it's very telling of of Mercury's life and that he he wanted to give this appearance of I'm happy and he's surrounding him. So he's trying to fill this void in his life, and so Paul, I I never took as this is like such a homophobic character i just took it as a toxic person in his life that actually existed and then we get jim hutton which i wish he was more represented because at the end of the film he is a gay man and they have a healthy relationship and then me knowing the history they were together until mercury's death and and uh jim hutton actually wrote a book about his relationship mercury and me which i definitely want to read because he he wrote it as a form of uh, therapy and coming to terms with his with Mercury's death, and I hear that's that's the story that uh, it's very. I was reading reviews, critically acclaimed. Very, if you want to know about Freddie's private life, that's the book to read. Yeah, and that's the, that's another thing that they just kind of. I, I I'm I guess this is the term I'm going to have to use. Is by the way, let me just start by saying that I agree with you 100 percent about you know it was a cautionary tale more so about toxic relationships. And the fact that Paul was very much, you know, Freddie was a famous person by that point. He was a wealthy, famous person. And that that's kind of happened to a lot of people. And it doesn't even have to be in a, an intimate relationship. Like you said, it's going to be, you're going to have toxic people around you. And I thought that was, and, and that was really well spelled out when the whole setup about Freddie was going to get the, the solo deal. 
and how he he set the other guy up and you know freddie fired i mean it's just it, it, i agree with you and i think you nailed it with the toxic relationship but to, to touch talk touch on the jim hutton thing this movie glosses over a whole lot of stuff. It omits a whole lot of stuff and it glosses over. We see Jim for six or seven minutes, if that, in one part of the film. And then we see him for the last, you know, three minutes of the movie when he meets Freddie's parents. There's a whole relationship there. There's a whole, like like you said. So, again. A positive, loving relationship. Yeah. Exactly. Which, you know, you, you, you get a little title card that says that they were together till the very end. But, you know... Again, I guess it, it leaves the movie leaves it on a high note that yeah, Freddie found found his you know his found his love he found his relationship, but we could have that could have been explored a little bit more in the movie I think, but mm-hmm. you know, this is this is the film that we got. And I yeah I, and that and that's the kind of the issue when you make a biopic in general. There's so many different routes you can go when you because when you're exploring a, a subject matter, they're typically very rich in content and choosing what you want to focus on is the is really the most difficult part and especially with someone as freddie mercury and queen like there's so many different avenues you can go down and you have to fit it within a a two hour time frame here i think it was just over two hours and which to me didn't really feel that long but some people might think two hours is a hell of a long time but yeah i that that to me, I, I I definitely wanted Jim Hutton more in the in the in the story. What they have, I think, is good, but it just wanted me it just wanted me asking for more. So and now I have to go get that from outside the movie. But and then I and that's that's kind of my my closing thoughts on the. Uh, I do not think the film is homophobic. I think it's more of like you said, a cautionary tale of toxic relationships. I don't know if you have of any more closing thoughts before I get to one of my more final critiques of the film no no go please go ahead i'm good so my final critique is kind of the i guess it's more of the we mentioned earlier with the sweeping and 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 really fast-paced nature the whole ray forster foster character mike miles mike myers character and the creation of the music i'm very well one i didn't like the mike myers sequences a whole lot I know, I think it's based on, his character is based on a collection of different music execs, but I just felt that these sequences left uh, a really weird taste in my mouth, especially the line, the whole the whole sequence of a film that makes a statement as formulas are boring and we don't like, and we don't like them, this film is certainly formulaic, which I, which I thought was really odd if they were trying to make the assertion that formula is bad and and Queen is going against the against the grain and they're trying to really revolutionize music. This film does not revolutionize anything. No, and I agree. And the um, the Mike Myers Ray Foster bit was, you know, and they had to throw that that line in there where he's you know when they're talking about Bohemian Rhapsody and Ray Foster says you know kids aren't going to be jamming to this in their car. You know, you'll see that'll never happen. Of course, that's a, a wink and a nod to the yeah. fact that they Mike Myers in uh, Wayne's world is jamming to Bohemian Rhapsody in this car. Like, I, that's, come on. Like that was to me that that you could have left that part out. I think I think just the fact that Mike Myers was in the movie would have been enough for most people to like, oh, well, isn't that clever? You know, he was in there. But but to have that line in there um, when we're talking about how they came up with the songs, there was a reoccurring word that kept going through my mind. 
And this doesn't apply to the Bohemian Rhapsody because I thought that was kind of interesting how they were putting piecing that film together. But with every other song they came up with, there was just this reoccurring word that came through my head over and over again. And that was bullshit. <laughs> like, I, I just, you know, I was like, fuck off. This is not how they came up with We Will Rock. This is not how this is not how they did this. This is not how they But it was. I just thought it was so like, hey, guys, we're having a problem. Listen to this hook real quick. And it was like, oh, that's good. We can do that. I didn't buy any of that. And I don't and, and it could be the most accurate part of the film. But for me, I was just like, this is this is a little bit ridiculous. So I, I didn't just the way they're coming up with another one bites the dust and we will rock you. I didn't I didn't buy that for a bit, not for a minute. It to me, it just felt like the whole every time they are creating these like their greatest hits, essentially, or what yeah. would be on their greatest hits. It's improv and they don't really know what they're doing. And it's just accidental that they just create musical genius and like musical fusion. And uh, like when they're just like putting random like stuff throughout, which I thought was like really weird. Like I'm like, OK, I get it. You're trying to get that they're really different and they're really trying to push the bounds like they're they're swinging the amp back and forth and they're putting quarters on the drums and and they're like putting um like lampshades on the on the mics and stuff like if they actually did that that'd be cool but it never happened throughout the entire film and even the uh the the uh the, i don't know the guy who's recording them he's when the when the music exec comes in he's like oh who are these guys like if there's some weird college band they've been at it all night like that to me i was like yeah this just this that that sequence feels really forced uh the the one that had me had my eyes rolling was another one bites the dust when we go from the scene of uh, freddie shows up late he's drunk he's high and they're all fighting it's this this big moment and then john deacon is just riffing like oh yeah, that that riffs Really That's awesome. exactly did what you, I'm talking did about. Did you write yep. that? And they're like, "All right, let's just go play that." And he's like, "Yes, now just play your damn instruments." And I'm like, "That, come on, like bullshit." I call bullshit on that. Uh, I'm trying to think of what else I. Uh, but I, but then there was some that I really did like. The Bohemian Rhapsody, when he's writing "Love of My Life," that was those were I think those were the two strongest moments for me, uh, because I just felt personal and and real, and it also wasn't done in a span of ten seconds. It was, yeah. it was, it, you could see it be him writing these songs throughout, 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 whether that be him playing the first few chords on the piano. And he's like, oh, yeah, I like it as potential. And then him just writing Love of My Life. Oh, it's for Mary. And then it's finally played. So it was, I, I, I wish there was more nuance to the film, ultimately. I, I think that this film rushes along really, really fast paced. And they just kind of say, oh, you know this song, you know this song like jam out which i i did like in some sense but also i wish there was that more detail oriented nuance to to the script to the storytelling and that's the issue because the songs are so damn good and and they're so beloved and 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 we love them as fans of the band that we 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 just like okay that's bullshit but fuck i love this song you know it's like it's it's almost like they 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 sort of hypnotize you into like looking past until you until the movie's over with and you go back and watch it for a second time then you like you said you're like this is not as nuanced as i thought it was after upon repeat viewing i, I will say this mike this story i think would have been better served in a five or six part miniseries I think that that uh, you do it on one of these streaming platforms, Amazon, Hulu, Netflix, doesn't matter. 
but you actually have time to tell their story proper, even 10 episodes, whatever. And I think people would have tuned in and I, you could have had the same cast and crew, everybody that's involved, but I just feel like this is a story that's almost 20 years, 25 years long. And I just don't feel like they, they captured enough of what this movie was supposed to be. I mean, of the story, what the story was supposed to be. Yeah, I completely agree. I think you said it best. The film hypnotizes you with the greatest hits of Queen because like the, the film starts with somebody to love and immediately I was like oh sweet I, I know this song I, I really like this song and and then it just keeps going more and more into their hits but yeah I think film hypnotizes you is a great way to to, to describe it so those were all of my major critiques of the film were there any more that you wanted to to address there was a couple ones and again I don't want to make it sound like I'm nitpicking here but you know, the movie gives the impression that the band broke up and they didn't, they didn't break up. They, and I, I was really, I, I'm, and I had to look this up after the movie because I, I've seen enough documentaries on the film, excuse me, enough documentaries on the band throughout the years that I was like, I don't remember there ever being a time when they broke up. Didn't they and just this, uh, I, focus on their solo careers? At yeah, this they time? all, yeah. yeah. And, but the, the, they had just come up, they had just come off tour about two or three months, and listeners might correct me if I'm, I'm wrong in my math, but it was a, a relatively short time in between coming off a world tour and doing Live Aid. And, you know, the movie gives you the impression that, like, oh, we haven't played in years. How are we going to be able to get the magic back? And and that, to me, I thought was a, a, a again, you didn't necessarily have to do that. You, you, you're focusing the movie so much on Freddie Mercury and his issues with with Paul and, and Jim and, and, and everything there that you could have just said, Hey, we're all off doing our own thing. But to give this impression that they, they broke up and, and they may, may not have gotten back together. And it was live aid that brought them, brought them back together. That might've been a, a misfire. And they left out one of the more controversial things that happened to the band. And that happened in the early 1980s, and are you familiar with the the situation they had where they played in South Africa? Oh, didn't they? Um, there was like a a, a boycott or a, a ban that they were playing in for um for the uh, apartheid, right? For apartheid, yeah. There was a, there was a, a a casino resort in South Africa South Africa called Sun City, and it was one of those very extravagant casinos that the world's elite would go to and they'd have the top musical acts in the world play there. But because of apartheid, you know, an international coalition of musicians, and this was even backed by the United Nations, had blacklisted Sun City as a place to play. But Queen continued to do performances there. And when they came back from doing a number of sold out shows there, they were they were in fucking shit with with the with the with the people that lived in England, like people around the world were pissed off at them and they had to do a couple years of damage control to sort of bring their name back. So the fact that they left that out of the movie, I mean, I understand why they left it out of the movie because it's, it's definitely, it was definitely a, a, a sort of a, a dark period for them as far as they were around the world. Like, you know, you know, burning albums, you know, like, you know, when people would, would get upset and they would, you know, destroy merchandise and, you know, they're, uh, I, I don't know if you remember when Millie Vanilli, when it was found out they were lip syncing, they had these big demonstrations where everybody was throwing their CDs and records into, into the streets and steamrollers were going over and just demolishing them. But people were doing that with Queen albums. Like people were absolutely pissed off at them. And 
they got fined by the British, uh, uh, the the union that represents British musicians. Like they they were in a lot of shit and they were blacklisted for a long time because of this. So the fact that they left that out, I thought was interesting, but at the same time, understandable why that was left out. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, and again, yeah, that picking and choosing of history and rearranging the timeline. Yeah, that's uh, that's because I, I had known that I didn't realize the damage was that bad, but damn, I yeah, because I, I feel like that would have added another uh, interesting layer to the whole, because it would have happened is if if it happened in the timeline of the film, it would have occurred when um, Freddy was at his like one of his lowest peaks, so. Interesting. Yeah, it it was if I I don't have the year in front of me, but I want to say that it was sometime between 83, 84, some somewhere in that time period. Like it was a it was a big deal. Like it was such a big deal that do you remember the, well, I should say do you remember I don't you weren't when were you born? Uh, I was born in 95. Okay, so no. Okay, so in the in the 1980s, and I remember because I was young enough to re, old enough to remember that back then they used to do what was known as the uh the, the songs for charity where they would bring oh, together yeah, they, they yeah, had, we uh, are the world the we are the world and, yeah yeah yeah, yeah the, the things like that things like that they even did a song called I'm not gonna or we, no I think it's called we ain't gonna play Sun City where it was all these bands and musicians <laughs> from around the world got together and it was just like a we are the world type song or or uh, do they know it's Christmas the British version of the, of that song uh, like so it was that it was that big of a deal that and that song like it charted like it was people were listening to it around the world like that's how big of a deal it was that musicians weren't going to play at Sun City and and Queen did so it was like a big deal oof yeah it's, oh, I, I and I'm yeah and that would have been something interesting if they actually went into that uh, explaining why they had done that or maybe Queen was just like yeah we're not going there we're not we're not going to resurface that that in, that incident but uh that's interesting yeah again it goes back into that uh rearranging the timeline and and they they could there's so much history there that could have elevated the film a little bit more that they just chose not to include. Yeah. Absolutely. Were there were there any other <laughs> any other uh, moments of history or uh critiques of the film itself? Because I have a final question then we can get into our, our closing thoughts and recommendations. Well, I mean, I think I could probably pick apart a few more things, but I don't want this to be I don't want to be going on this long negative you know, the diatribe about, you know, everything this movie got wrong because every biographical film gets a bunch of stuff wrong. The question whether it becomes more or less, is it still an enjoyable film to watch? So I don't want to stay super negative. Uh, there were some timeline issues regarding when certain songs were released. Uh, specifically, We Will Rock You was released. I think the when they say it was released in the film was actually recorded five years prior to that and it had already become a hit. So little nitpicks like that, but... Uh, no, no, I'll, 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 I'll stop with the, with the, with the picking apart of the timeline, but you know, because the, I'll buy the, the film, it becomes a question of whether or not you enjoy the movie. So, yeah. so my final question for you is with the Oscars right around the corner, this film is nominated for five Oscars, best picture, best actor, best sound editing, best sound mixing and best editing. 
So for you, I was, I'm asking, do you think Bohemian Rhapsody will win any, and are these warranted? And I think you know more about sound editing and sound mixing, because I don't really know much about that category. So maybe you can fill me in on, on that category, or if you care about it, I don't, I don't really know. <laughs> well, the, 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 the thing about the sound mixing, the sound editing, the, historically, those movies, those awards tend to go to movies that, you know, aren't usually in the running for best picture i'll give you an example terminator 2 won you know an academy award for best sound editing and sound mixing for example you know like it tends to go to like the real technical achievements about what you're seeing on screen versus what you're hearing i think even star wars movies have been nominated marvel films may have been nominated like it's 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 usually these big complex movies like when i say complex i mean on a technical level to make so having said that I do believe that Bohemian Rhapsody could absolutely be in the running for sound mixing simply on the fact of how flawlessly they pulled off just the lip syncing alone to me, to me. And I know, I know that's crazy, but that's, so I would say that one, um, for, we've talked about best actor, you know, I think he, I think he is going to win, even though I think Bale probably deserves the Academy Award slightly more best picture. Listen, I'm I've been peddling this crazy conspiracy theory that I think Black Panther's going to win best picture. So, here's my conspiracy theory. You want to hear it? Yeah, go so for it. So my conspiracy my conspiracy theory is this. I know I tend to boycott and talk a lot of shit about Marvel films. <clears throat> but I had I did actually finally sit down and watch Black Panther and I thought it was a fun movie. And I thought I I get it. Like I totally get why everybody really enjoyed the movie. Like it was it was fine. Not something I'm going to watch again, but it was fine. That being said, the the ratings have been down year after year on the Academy Awards. They're trying to put more popular films into these categories. So the Oscars are on ABC. ABC is a network owned by Disney. Disney owns Marvel. And I just see this theory where I believe that Black Panther is going to win Best Picture as a way to to get more Marvel and comic book film nominations over the next few years to get more people watching because the big movies that everyone want to see are up for the awards. But this is just a crazy conspiracy theory that I have. Now, having said that, if that one doesn't win, could very well be Bohemian Rhapsody because it just, it, you know, it won the Golden Globe. I mean, it's a, it's a possibility. Could, could be a star is born. I don't know. So... With the so with with this Oscar, I I definitely think that he's gonna win for best actor. Uh, I I don't think best editing, but again, I haven't seen, I haven't seen most of the Oscar films. Uh, I did see Roma, which I think, that's just a, a amazing film. I think that it's very much like the um like a Moonlight versus La La Land. One is easily more entertaining than the other, but I mean they're both entertaining, but in different ways. One's populist, one's not, and but one, but Moonlight is a far superior and far more important film than La La Land. Here, I think Roma, among, I mean, I haven't seen half of those films, so I'll admit that. But from what I had seen from Roma, that is such an important film and such an achievement in filmmaking that I'm hoping it wins based on what the award represents, what an Oscar represents. But you know that won't happen. Oh yeah, I know that's what I you're want. hoping, and I'm, I'd be hoping that too. I, I, my only regret was I didn't get to see Roma on the big screen. Yeah, I, I got, I saw it on a 60 inch flat screen, and that's the best I was able to to muster. Yeah, same. And 
if that doesn't win cinematography, I mean, what are we doing? Like, but you know, that's a whole nother discussion. We, we should, we should, if we would have had enough time, we should have done an Oscars preview show. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would have been interesting, maybe next year, but the, so I'm, I mean, I don't, I think the only one that's kind of, I don't want to say warranted cause I don't really know about editing and, or sound editing and sound mixing, but definitely best actor. I think that, I mean, I haven't seen Vice, so I, I can't really speak to um, him, but I think your theory earlier in the episode of people hate Dick Cheney, even uh, Christian Bale during his acceptance speech was, oh, I'd like to thank Satan for giving me the yeah. the inspiration to play this role. But I, with Best Actor and, Ma- and Rami Malek, I just keep thinking back to, like, this is a career-defining performance and i keep thinking back to actors like tom hanks in um forrest gump or daniel day lewis and anything he does when you don't see the actor you see the person and and i think that's most evident and i mean i don't forrest gump to me is a another flawed movie but it's a good movie but it's flawed and but tom hanks is utterly amazing in that film and i see a lot of parallels between the two actors in that i just didn't i just saw the character i didn't even see the actor so i i'm hoping i mean i also like rami malik uh, but also christian bale is kind of due he's been beating himself up literally for an oscar but this was but these were both very physical roles in in that christian bale gained a shit ton of weight and Rami Malek had the performance uh, ask, uh, aspect as well, so it could be a, to- a coin toss. But I even I also haven't seen Vice, so maybe when I eventually see it, I'll well obviously way after this, maybe I'll be like, yeah, that's we'll see if it was a warranted or if it was a a steal or not. We'll we'll make that decision later on. My my ten second review of Vice for those who haven't seen it that if is that if you're not if you don't find politics interesting you're going to be bored to tears with this movie because this film, it is directed by Adam McKay, who did The Big Short, which is such a fun, fast-moving, entertaining movie that's really funny. This movie is very methodical, slow-paced, and again, I stress, if you're not into politics, if if you're not interested in politics, you can skip it because you will be bored to tears. That being said, I really like the movie. Hmm, Interesting, because I heard a lot of mixed reviews as well about Vice. But uh, I, I did want to see it, and that was another one of those trailers that really uh, – the, because the tra- I, I, I don't like saying that trailers – I like trailers. Well, I don't like trailers, but when a trailer really does hook me – but that's its job. It's supposed to hook me. But that was – these two trailers definitely got me going. I think it was because of the music because obviously here we have Queen, but in Vice it was uh, The Killers, The Man, which is such a, a, a great song. But – yeah, so that's that's my Oscar predictions. I think it's only going to win best uh, best actor, but we'll see. We'll see whenever the Oscars roll around if I'm correct or not. Absolutely. So I guess this can go into our closing thoughts and recommendations. So I I, I can go first. So tip on this on a uh, amateur tours we give our closing thoughts and then the recommendation out of ten because I, I think that's a it's a good gauge. Uh, it's kind of, it kind of reminds me of just Rotten Tomatoes out of 100, whether or not we'd recommend. So my closing thoughts of Bohemian Rhapsody, it's a fun movie. Well, Rami Malek, obviously, top, highest accolades. If you want to go see, uh, for someone like me, this was the closest to a Queen performance I'm ever going to see. And you could go see all the documentaries, you can go see Live Aid, but if you want to see Live Aid or just Queen in a different perspective, 
I would I would recommend the movie. I would recommend the movie in general, but definitely ha- have an open mind because I don't think the expectations may be met. It it can be it is flawed, it is unfocused, and I would I'm going to give Bohemian Rhapsody a 6.5 out of 10. On my first impression, I think I gave it a 7 out of 10, but I'm definitely going to go back and and just knock it down just a little bit after the high has worn off and I'm going to give it a six and a half out of ten. Solid solid effort, solid movie, but it definitely could have used some work. Well, for all the reasons I was hesitant to see the movie, a lot of them actually came to fruition in the sense that I, I felt like I was going to be disappointed because I'm I'm such a big fan of this band that I, I felt like I was going to be unfulfilled. And in a, in a sense, I was unfulfilled, but at the same time, I cannot deny the fact that there are music... The music is so enduring and so timeless now that I still have to recommend this movie. I still have to recommend it. Even I'll I actually I'll say that with an asterisk. If you're not a Queen fan, if you're like I don't like Queen, I could care less. Maybe, maybe this movie's not going to be for you. But if you like their music, it, it's worth seeing the film just for the music alone and the performance by Remy Malik. I mean that's I mean that's the, the and what am I talking about? And the last 20 minutes of the movie. So, there's there's I think there's enough good in this film to outweigh the negative. That being said, this is like any other biopic. It it picks and chooses the narrative. It picks and chooses what it's going to leave in and what it's going to leave out and and certainly plays with the facts a little bit. So, I would give it a 5.5 it's just a slight if five is just a perfectly average movie, I'm gonna give this five point five, maybe a six. Maybe a six. Yeah. Uh it's definitely worth to watch the last just for the last twenty minutes alone. And I think that's a completely fair assessment uh of the film. And so that concludes our discussion of Bohemian Rhapsody. Dana, thank you once again for coming back, especially on short notice. I I wasn't I wasn't sure how your schedule was gonna work out. Uh, but I'm, I'm super glad that we could sit down and have this discussion. Absolutely. Listen, happy to do it anytime, man. Just let me know. And we've got, actually, we've got, uh, I've got a couple things planned to talk to you about. We'll talk about it off camera. But listen, thanks for having me on. It's, listen, anytime, happy to be on there and uh, happy to be on the show. And uh, I look forward to, to being back again soon. All right, perfect. And uh, anyone that wants to listen, you can go check out Dana at uh, the Dana Buckler Show. And I'll post your, um, your Twitter as well in the... Uh, description and, and all of that stuff so everyone thanks for listening to this episode of amateur tours if you like what you heard give us a review like whatever on whatever listening platform you have follow us at twitter at a tours pod or email us with any questions comments or concerns so we'll see you next time guys thank you thank you for listening to this episode of amateur tours cover design was created by sarah jacobs you can find more of her work at our own site and instagram digital adventures Opening and closing theme, Dreams, was created by Joachim Karid, which was found using a Creative Commons search. As a small plug, go check out both Joachim's and Sarah's work. They really deserve it. All content discussed and shown is the property of their respective owners and is used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We are working hard to bring you all new content and episodes. So thank you again, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.